Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Hello, BFG. How are you doing, my friend? Hello, Bowman. Not too bad. Yourself? Pretty good, buddy. Pretty good. Um, <clears throat> it's great to be here. November the 18th. It was touch and go there for, for a little while on my side of the pond. Uh, my daughter's uh, quite sick, got a bit of a stomach bug. We were up all oh night. My. Yeah, up all night dealing with the uh, little girl there. Not, It's not nice, uh, you know. I mean... It's a sin, yeah. It, I mean, everybody goes through it, you know, but as a parent, first time through, no frame of reference. Yeah, it's not nice to watch her, you know, kind of helpless, not not being able to help herself out. Give you appreciation for what your parents went through, you know? Kind of, it does, yes. Um, but uh, my family is so strong and supportive that uh, they just knew we had to have this show. So uh, Rosanna pulled herself together and said, you know what, Dad, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let the ship down. I'm I'm going to go away and, and allow you and Uncle Josh here to, to do this show because, um, you know, needs must. Needs must. Uh, thank you, Rosanna. We appreciate your <laughs> sacrifice. Uh, uh, hope, I hope you feel better, sweetheart. Yeah, it's my wife, really, who needs the uh, round of applause. But, you know, we can't, can't give her a round of applause every show. She'll start to think that something's up. High fives everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, look, pal, here we are. Uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles is behind us. And we've got the return of Sherlock Holmes ahead of us. How do you feel? Is that a good thing, though? Is it good that the Hound of the Baskervilles is behind us? I mean, if you think about (laughs) that statement, is that a good thing? I I don't don't know. know. Well, I think think you know what I meant. Yeah. Uh, Yes, of course I did. Uh, Yeah, we're now digging into the return of Sherlock Holmes uh, and the first three stories from that volume, the ones published in The Strand originally. Uh, and then, of course, collected into the return of Sherlock Holmes. Now, while Hound of the Baskervilles was basically uh, the return of Sherlock Holmes officially, I, you know, to to the whole world, to the fandom, this is the conti- actual continuation of, I guess, chronologically, in a way, of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Yeah. Because it is yeah. in the empty house where the cliffhanger, and that's that's pretty much exactly what it was, almost if you think about it, mm-hmm. uh, literally. Literally, yes, literally, uh, was, in fact, will be concluded, I should say, in The Empty House. Mm -hmm. It will indeed. Uh, We got three stories to do today. After The Empty House, we're going to talk about the Norwood Builder, and then we're going to finish our episode today with uh, The Adventure of the Dancing Men. The Dancing Men. Mm. What you got to do is you got to find a cue for, like, YMCA or or something like that. Yeah, I know. I tried to find good musical selections um, for for today uh, i'm not sure that i nailed it right on the bullseye you know some days i'm, I'm really hitting hot some days i'm i'm batting cold but if you look we'll see. 
if you look at those crude drawings of the dancing men, I mean, those guys, they, they look like, I don't know, it feels like village people to me. It's it like does, they're having yeah. a good time. It does. They're having, a good, they're having a good time. Well, look, I've got something that I hope will give us a good time that's also thematically linked. So let's, let's just wait to see what happens when we get there. Listen, dude, how you been doing in the last few weeks? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm on vacation this week uh, just because I had some vacation left over that I had to take, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've just been doing that, get, getting some stuff together, making some life planning, you know, just uh, some some good some good thinking was done this week. So I think I accomplished that. And that was uh, uh, my my main goal anyway. Well, that's good. And, and, and of course, for doing this show on Monday. Well, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, so, uh, on, sorry, this Saturday morning. Goes without saying. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's only really been three and a bit, isn't it? Three and a bit weeks since we last met up, um, which is kind yeah, of it's... kind of kind of makes sense because it was about five or six weeks between our last two episodes, and I think maybe what we'll do is schedule the second part of the return for over the Christmas holidays. Yeah, that might be a good idea. I was also we we should add that uh, the the main reason why there is there is a little few and far between uh, in this time around. Is simply because uh, Hound of the Baskervilles had a bit of a uh, has some troubles getting off the uh, the uh, runway. You know what I mean? She had a couple of dodgy uh, um, lifts off that we had to make sure all the um, instruments were properly, you know, in place. And you know, we we, we didn't want we didn't want the uh, the plane to go down in that way. And so we made sure that the, everything was refueled. You know, the baggage was checked. And uh, that, that, that did take an, that did take an extra week or more to get accomplished, but it was worth it in the end. Yeah, and it, well, it was worth it in the end. It was a bit of a pain in the ass at the time, but hey, bygones, bygones, and that's all in the by. Blood and sweat, my friend. Yes, mm-hmm. in, in the by, in, in the by, eyes the by, eyes eyes the by. You got any Newfoundland friends up there right now? Newfoundland friends. Yeah. Uh, our next door neighbor. Uh, he's from Newfoundland. Is he? Yes. What part? Uh, I forget now. I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to get, get, get you back get back on that one for you. I'm just curious, um, because you don't hear I don't hear anybody over here talk about bison, you know. Uh, really? Okay. No, 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 oh, no, that... no not a lot of Scots. Um, been to Newfoundland, no, no, Newfoundland, as it's pronounced over here. They don't know. Uh, don't know much about it and haven't met many people who have been there and i certainly haven't met any other newfoundlanders apart from the ones that have come visiting you know hmm. i wonder what sherlock holmes thinks of newfoundlanders he probably thinks they're uh, they're uh, wonderful people he probably hides out on on investigations in like in the uh tabletop mountains or something like that mm, you think he's been there probably i'm sure he has he's been to the dalai lama from, from what we learn in the empty house so i'm pretty sure he's been to newfoundland <laughs> well should we get on to that then and uh Stop waxing rhetoric and, and, and get some uh, get some work done. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to jump into the adventure of the empty house. Uh, now, the adventure of the empty house is the first story, short story that was published uh, that was at, that would be added to the return of Sherlock Holmes, the thirteen story cl- c- collection at the end of the year, uh, the following year, I should say. Now, it's said in 1894, these stories, but of course, they weren't published until September 1903. That was the, the, when The Adventure of the Empty House was published in Strand Magazine. Uh, it concludes the story uh, threads from the final problem. Now, How the Baskervilles, as I mentioned earlier, was the official return, but The Empty House is kind of, the, it resolves, you know, as we talked about, that cliffhanger, that big event, you know, 
how does he come back from the dead? You know, like how, how, how do you bring a character back to life who fell off a waterfall? Mm. Uh, so, yeah. But that, that's, that's basically me giving you the publication information on it. Uh, it was published in September 1903 in the Strand Magazine, and I guess soon after, we're probably around the same time in Bazaar. I couldn't find information when Harper's Bazaar in the States published it, but I know Strand got it in September 1903. Did, did that big uh, lexicon, that, that big uh, annotated version of the books, did, did, did that explain to you when the American publication was at all? or September 26, 1903 in Collier's. Oh, okay. Collier's is was was it was the is the American equivalent then, and it so, was the October edition of the Strand. Oh, okay. So, so so the Americans had it before the British did. Interesting. And this is one of the things I'm going to talk about as well. I got I got some information about his relationship, Doyle's relationship with the editor, um, with the Strand magazine, and there, it's not certainly isn't bad blood, but uh, the Strand was a little bit a little bit miffed that um, Collier's got in there with a, a nicer offer to take the stories first. But we'll we'll get to it. Um, oh, cool! You, you got any reviews? Any public yeah. thoughts? Uh, public thoughts. Well, if you count Goodreads, of course we count Goodreads. Yes, we need to use the masses. So one person said here that the tension is real. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I, I guess that's a fair statement. Sure. Uh, another person said, "For a while, a story will drain you. Then the story will amuse you. Then the story will just be with you. But in the end, <laughs> the story will certainly astound you." Oh, boolah. Yeah, and as one person eloquently also put it, ha 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 ha! Sherlock can be such a dick. I love it. Is that it? That's that that that's his review. Yes. Gosh. Yeah. Um, well, well, with that um, cleared up for us, should I <laughs> yeah. should I get into our plot summary? Yeah, dive into that plot summary and see if we can clear up the fact. Uh, I'm sure wondering now, the audience is wondering how Sherlock is a dick in this story. Okay. And, uh... <laughs> well, I, I, can't promise, um, I can't promise clairvoyance on that, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. Mm. So, The Adventure of the Empty House. Despite its commercial success in 1903, The Hound of the Baskervilles didn't do much to tame the Bane throng of contemporary Sherlock devotees who were still awaiting a continuation of the great detective's chronology after plummeting over the Reichenbach Falls in The Final Problem. They didn't have too long to wait for that cozy leash and collar, however, as the adventure of the empty house appeared in October and domesticated their wild fury with answers. Well, sort of. Watson begins his tale by embodying the foreshadowed spirit of a navel-gazing blogger from the 21st century, apologizing for not being online in a while. No doubt, Doyle's ventriloquism act, meaning to assuage the frustrations of his own fans. I think well, Sherlock, in, in the modern day, would, would, be, would be in the basement... With, like, Cheetos and, like, a neck beard. <laughs> you could be right. Well, in the three years since that fateful Reichenbach fall, don't pardon the pun, Watson, a widower now, poor fellow, has been trying his hand at consultant work himself, more as a means of mourning his old roomie than anything else. Doyle offers no hard evidence that Watson was instrumental in revealing an awful lot of successes for the police, but isn't it cute to think so? One of the cases, the most intriguing, Watson states, was the murder of Ronald Adair, second son to the Earl of Maynooth. Now, you'd be forgiven for mistaking Maynooth as the name of a star system in the Star Wars universe, but actually, <laughs> its name comes from a sizable university town in County Kildare, Ireland. Like a lot of rich kids, Ronald moved in swanky circles and rubbed shoulders with the Oxford Street glitterati. But unlike a lot of them, he didn't have much in the way of entitlement about him. 
In fact, his distinct lack of enemies and his benevolent good nature made his death a widespread mystery. Who would want to shoot him? Well, (laughs) one night after returning from a card game, Ronald was sitting over a ledger in his Park Lane study when... A soft-nosed revolver bullet moves through his head with great velocity, killing him instantly. Bravo on the sound effect, by the way. No problem. Um, I worked on that all week. You, you did, and man, yeah. it paid off. Well, I wasn't sure to go with a spit or a pow, and I just thought pow didn't fit the soft-nosed revolver bullet. Didn't? No, it's not. It's, it's almost like 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 a you see like in the movies like the silencers, right? Mm-hmm. Like a yeah. like like a dip 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 or something or no thwip thwip. <laughs> I'm glad, that, you, that's, that's glad you picked up on that. Yeah. <laughs> Watson tells us that his head had, quote, been horribly mutilated by the shot. The door was locked from the inside, and there is no conceivable motive for this murder. Authorities and family are both flummoxed. Upon the desk at which Ronald was working stood a few neat piles of money and names of his card-playing socializing pals penned into a ledger. Presumably, he was just making out to pay some of them off for his gambling here or there. This would have been entirely... Uh, acceptable, easy enough to do, and he and his playing partner, Colonel Sebastian Moran, had recently made a nice catch of 420 pounds at the tables. Thanks to his association with Holmes, Watson had no problem gaining entry to the crime scene, and relates to us his confusion in chewing over these facts, just like everyone else involved. Another lock room mystery. No mongoose tracks with this one, though. (laughs) Well, in pondering the case, on the corner of Oxford and Park Lane, Watson knocks into an elderly deformed man who chastises him for his clumsiness and snarls contemptibly in his direction. Fancy his surprise then when moments later the same distorted curmudgeon crawls into his Kensington study, apparently to apologize for his gruffness. Yeah, we can all smell the master of disguise in the room. All except for the good doctor, that is. When Holmes reveals himself, Watson faints for what he claims was, quote, the first and last time in my life. Uh, True or not, the resurrecting power of Brandy, and I don't know where the Brandy came from, maybe Sherlock just kept a flask on him, brought him back around and the two engage lovingly and Sherlock starts to fill in the three-year gap for his BFF with some incredible tales. First up, how he got out of the falls. Well, he never actually went into them. No, it turns out that Moriarty wasn't quite the scary end boss that Holm had originally thought. (laughs) All it took was a sharp little baritsu to toss the old codger over the precipice and into his final shower. No, Holmes didn't stop for a coffee. Baritsu refers to an obscure form of Japanese wrestling that Holmes just happened to, conveniently, have knowledge of. Sherlock then tells Watson that he understood, at that moment, the incredible advantage that lay before him. If, like Moriarty, he too could become dead in the public eye, then he would be able to attack what remained of the Kingpin's criminal network from the shadows. Mm -hmm. But from really far away. How far, I hear you ask? Well, once he escaped Reichenbach and the Alps, itself not an easy task, as one of of Moriarty's hired confederates hung around for a while launching boulders down the cliff like Donkey Kong after him. (laughs) We have have end bosses and Donkey Kong. (laughs) You can see where where my head was. Anyway, after this, Holmes headed to Tibet, where he smoked peace pipes with the Dalai Lama and undertook remarkable explorations under the name of a Norwegian phenom, Sigerson. Persia, Khartoum, and Montpellier all followed before Holmes finally returned to London on learning, presumably from Mycroft, the only Alfred to his Batman for these three years, that only one of Moriarty's main men remained at large. Still, for his plan to work, he'd need to reveal himself to the enemy because, after three years, and the memory of a lot of boulders thrown at him, there's every chance that Moriarty's henchmen had given up. Anyway, tale told, friendship rekindled, and was such great timing since the death of Mary. 
Holmes tells Watson that he's close to solving the case of Ronald Adair's death and suspects that he'll apprehend the criminal this very night. Without giving too much away, Holmes infers that a masterful trap has been set. Well, Sherlock leads Watson on a labyrinthine cab ride through the alleys and back streets until they disembark the cab and enter, through the back, an empty house opposite their very own cherished 221B Baker Street. From that vantage point, they have a clear view into Holmes's study, and what a sight to behold. Silhouetted against the blind is the very double of Holmes himself. Oh, ruffling his feathers, pleasuring in Watson's befuddlement. Oh, how we've missed this patronizing. Monsieur, or sorry, Holmes informs his partner that he commissioned the fine likeness of himself, a wax imposter, from Monsieur Oscar Menure of Grenoble. And though out of view, Mrs. Hudson was up there, on her knees no less, doing her best Macaulay Culkin Home Alone impression, tugging on strings to simulate movement and life. The reason? Well, these are the last steps in an intricate dance which Holmes has been having with Moriarty's last remaining associate. But before you can say Victorian sniper, in comes the dastardly shooter with intent to rid the world of Holmes once and for all. He sets up and fires a modified air rifle. Remember Holmes's fear of these in the final problem? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. almost immediately, the dynamic duo launched themselves like Adam West and Burt Ward upon the villain. Having been <laughs> previously pepped, Inspector Lestrade emerges from the shadows like the trusting spaniel he is. Though, let's be <laughs> honest, it's great to see him back here. And the revelation yes. can begin. To everyone's surprise, apart from Holmes's, of course, the shooter is none other than Colonel Sebastian Moran, Adair's friendly card-playing chum, and, according to Sherlock at least, the second most dangerous man in London. Not only was the colonel responsible for killing the Honourable Ronald Adair, the honest young nobleman was about to turn his pal in for cheating, by the way. resulting At whist, of all things. At whist, resulting in a very (laughs) serious social sentence. But he was also mixed up in the underworld of Moriarty, a disciple rabbit in that egregious warren of sin. A Koto Hugo Drax. Comfortably back in Baker Street, Holmes elucidates the colonel's character with further depth and color for Watson, and we learn just how scummy and talented he really was. Not just in his military and card-cheating careers, but in his Swiss boulder-throwing, too. Reunited and back in the public eye, Holmes, Watson, and the rest of the reading world settled more comfortably at long last into their ass grooves and prepare for the adventures that lie ahead. There we go. So the, the dynamic duo is reunited, and uh, the last of Moriarty's empire, I guess have the, the last general of, of, this, of, the, of the, uh, the dead Caesar is uh, brought to justice. So you could say. Yeah. I don't think I missed anything there. Now, here's what I'm wondering, because I never caught this in the text. Okay. Watson is a widow? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's largely presumed. Well, he's talking about... When he meets Holmes, right, and <clears throat> and Holmes apologizes to him and then offers his condolences for his loss, and we presume that that's his wife who's passed. Oh, I, I never really thought of that at all. That's really interesting that Do- that Doyle just like killed her off in between. I guess if you're not really looking for it, it's easy to miss, eh? Like, yeah, uh, and it- I got to be honest, I'll put my hand up. I wasn't looking for it. The only reason I'm even picked up on that is because of Klinger's annotations, and while it hasn't even been proven. Um, annotations are telling me that that's what most of the scholars believe, that this is when his wife dies. And, you know, Holmes's reappearance in his life couldn't be better timed. Interesting. I, I guess because it just, it's almost like as if like the writers were just, sorry, the writer, I should say, uh, was, 
I wonder if just fan demand just wanted just to have Watson and him at a two two one B Baker Street, and maybe that was was more expedient for Doyle to have the two of them living there all the time, you know, in his further stories. I think you're probably right. It simplified a certain thing for him that he wouldn't have to he wouldn't have to worry about bringing Mary back in. And but then again, having said that. You know, he never worried about bringing her in anyway. Like, she was never there, so... I know, it's she's, like, non-existent, right? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so, so there we go. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and it kind of... I, have, I had a little rant about Watson, like, banning his wife uh, in, my, in my summary for the uh, Norwood Builder. So... All right. Uh, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you anyways, but... Uh, uh, still, that was a very good summation, uh, Mr. Powell. Good. Well, you know, give it to me anyway because I, I don't know off the top of my head where the Norwood Builder lies in the chronology of the Holmes stories. Like, it, it could still, it, you know, all of these return of Sherlock Holmes, I don't, I don't know that they're all meant to be after Reichenbach, but perhaps they are. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point as well. Because these things jump around so much. No, actually, no. The Norwood Builder begins with Holmes musing that he's bored and he wants to. Uh, get, well, my summary will 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 we'll, we'll get it get get into that. Cool. So I guess uh, let's light those pipes. What are you in the mood for today? Something occidental. Something occidental. Yes. All right, that's that's kinky for you. Yeah. Normal, normally, you just like it stiff up like a Toby. That's it. Old Toby, yeah. No, well, that's in Middle Earth, so that's hard to find. It doesn't stop you from asking for it every week. No, it doesn't. Okay, pal, pipes are lit. We've got an acronym, which we probably don't need to explain, but you know, it wouldn't be the same if we didn't. So, uh, BFG, what are we scoring here? So, P- pipes is an acronym... P is for principles, that's uh, Sherlock and Watson. Uh, then we have the investigation, which is basically the story, the narrative. Uh, then the third item, uh, P, perpetrators, that's the villain. Then we have the environs, and then we have the supporting casts. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, uh, you want to start with the principles then? I will. Yeah, go ahead. All right, so... Watson, okay, he he honors his perceived uh, to be fallen comrade by pursuing his in, the, an interest in crime. So uh, that's how he gets upon the Ronald Adair crime scene is because he's pursuing his interest. He's keeping up the mantle, right? Mm. Um, if you look at um, in my thing here, at, uh, the the, the I don't want to give you the page number out here because I have the big complete collection here and it's not going to match what you have there. I'm sure. Right. Um, what are you looking at? Whereabouts are you? Yeah, so I'm in the second paragraph. Okay. And uh, this is very. This is a very good description of of Watson's state, and I think it really. Sh- I think in this story, Watson kind of is sort of almost like the primary character. Almost, it's the protagonist of this story in many ways, uh, because Sherlock comes into it, you know, by surprise, and it and he's not like. He, He's pursuing his own angle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be imagined that my close intimacy with Sherlock Holmes had interested me deeply in crime. And that after his disappearance, I never failed to read with care the various problems which came before the public. And I even attempted more than once for my own private satisfaction to employ his methods in their solution, though with indifferent success. There was none, however, which appealed to me like this tragedy of Ronald Adair. 
As I read the evidence at the inquest, which led up to a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown, I realized more clearly that I had ever done the loss which the community had sustained by the death of Sherlock Holmes. There were points about this strange business which would, I was sure, have especially appealed to him, and the efforts of the police would have been supplemented, or more probably anticipated by the trained observation and the alert mind of the, of the first criminal agent in Europe. Uh, so yeah, that's just right, right there. That kind of sets the ground for um, Watson's current situation um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the empty house, prior to his um, re- his reunion with uh, his old friend. And there's something there's something in those words that you just read for us that I think is worth worth picking out because in in this context, the word first he, he refers to Holmes as the first criminal agent in Europe. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't just suggest like pioneer, but also best, you know, as in principle. Yeah. As in principle, but yes. I, I find that really ironic following the previous story where. Um, uh, Mortimer, Dr. Mortimer, claim, claim, <laughs> yes. claims that Holmes is actually the second best. And it's almost like this is a, a rebuttal, you know? Yeah, and Holmes is also like passive-aggressively bitter about that comment too. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like, well, tell me your story or or or, or leave. That's <laughs> pretty much uh, the ultimatum that Holmes presents to um, or, or, or Mortimer. But again, this was, pro- was this prior, was this take place before Hound of the Baskervilles? Or sorry, this, did this take place... After, the Hound of Baskervilles, yeah. I, I should say, take place after the empty house, or does it take place before? No, it, it takes place before. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So probably just before he got on the whole um, connection with Moriarty, most likely. Perhaps. Yeah, I be- yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so okay, I, he- I heard you say that um, you like Watson in this story. A word that we tend to throw around a lot on this um, a lot on this podcast, for better or for worse, is agency. And yes. um, in some stories, we see the second characters um, or the main character of Watson having agency and others we don't. You think he's got it here, huh? Yeah. I mean, you look at, uh, for example, uh, the following page, uh, second page, I guess, of the story. It depends on how you're, what edition you have. But this is Watson's thoughts on the Adair murder. And this kind of reveals his investigative prowess. And we see that he's thinking like Holmes. Uh a minute examination. A minute examination of the circumstances served only to make the case more complex. In the first place, no reason could be given why the young man should have fastened the door upon the inside. There was possibility that the murderer had done this and had afterwards escaped by the window. The drop was at least twenty feet, however, and a bed of crocuses in full bloom lay beneath. Neither the flowers nor, nor the earth showed any sign of having been disturbed, nor were there any marks upon the narrow strip of grass which separated the house from the road. Apparently, therefore, it was the young man himself who had fastened the door. But how did he come by his death? No one could have climbed to the window without leaving traces. Suppose a man had fired through the window. He would indeed be a remarkable shot who could, with a revolver, inflict so deadly a wound. Again, Park Lane is a frequented thoroughfare. There is a cab stand within a hundred yards of the house. No one had heard a shot. And yet there was a dead man, and there was a revolver bullet, which had mushroomed out, as soft-nosed bullets will, and so inflicted a wound that must have caused instantaneous death. Such were the circumstances of the Park Lane mystery, which were further complicated by entire absence of motive, since, as I have said, young Adair was not known to have any enemy, and no attempt had been made to remove the money or valuables in the room. Now, previous and other stories, I don't think, with rare exceptions, Watson does not see these kind of, does not make these kind of observations. It's usually Sherlock explaining this to Watson, or something like that, or Watson making terrible conclusions, and then, then Doyle as Sherlock basically showing Sherlock the, the more observant individual, right, in the writing. 
I found this here was Watson using the skills that Sherlock taught him to look at a crime scene and consider all different angles of that crime scene, so to speak. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree with you. And the next paragraph continues, I think, maybe evidencing that fact, that that observation of yours even more, where uh, Watson says that, uh, you know, he's mulling over these facts in his mind. He's trying to get some theory. Um, and to find, quote, that line of least resistance, which my poor friend had declared to be the starting point of every investigation. So, yeah, I mean, Holmes believed in a starting point that was obvious. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And Watson is seeing the obvious and he's making these deductions and he's making good observations and in in that way. So Watson has spent three years, you know, mourning his friend and chooses to carry on his mantle in his own fashion. Uh, the passages I referenced, they demonstrate his loyalty to his friend and his partner in crime fighting. And I, I think these chapters do that. Now, of course, you have two is then you have 480. Uh, my page is 486, but, you know, it will differ. This is like Watson's response. Holmes, I cried. Is it really you? Can it indeed be that you are alive? Is it possible that you succeed in climbing out of that awful abyss? Now, this was my one criticism towards the development of Watson. I just don't think that would be the reaction of someone who just saw their friend come back from the dead. Uh, well, his, his first reaction is to faint. And I'm not so sure that a medical, yeah, a medical army that, surgeon would, would faint either. Uh, so I think we're seeing some, yeah, some unrealistic writing here, but for different reasons. I, I, can't, see, I can't see Watson fainting uh, no. because of the yeah. things he's seen in combat and you know the toughness of his metal. You can't see him asking that sort of plaintive question. And I, I think there's some... There's some, you know, I wouldn't say poor writing, but certainly some inaccuracies or inconsistencies here. It's almost like as if Watson's investigative powers are automatically nullified as soon as Sherlock shows up. And it, yeah, I think, <laughs> and, and, yeah, and he yeah, turns yeah, into yeah. And he turns into almost like a damsel in distress, almost. Like, <laughs> yes, I think you're uh, right, though. I think I think that there is an effort with here brain, with brain fever. <laughs> there is an effort here on uh, Doyle's part to build up the romanticism of the scene. I mean, this this is this is a scene that. You know, contemporary readers have been waiting for a long, long time, and yeah. I, I think it needs to be Holmes is back with, you know, this this great Anna's, this great advantage over his pal and the big surprise factor and whatnot. So I, I, you know, I can understand why he's doing it, but it doesn't really feel consistent. Yeah. No, it's true, but I guess you know, again, this illustrates his improvement in the science of deduction, right? Uh, <clears throat> yeah. b- b- before his fainting, of course. Um, in many ways, though, like this develop this early development that you see in him, this or this hopeful development that you see of Watson in the beginning of the empty house. I'm almost intrigued to have Holmes of resurrection. Now it should have been delayed. You know, I think so. We, so maybe got like one or two short stories with Watson on his own, but I don't think that would have sold very well. Well, even, even if it was delayed longer in this story, I, I don't disagree with you because, you know, we read the Hound of the Baskervilles um, very recently, and there was a monstrous delay between Watson uh, at Baskerville Hall, and then Holmes being discovered in the Neolithic uh, ruins. You Watson know, is is great because like Watson was effective. The Hound of the Baskervilles too is because one thing great about the Hound of the Baskervilles was a supporting cast. I mean, it's, it's the best supporting cast in all Sherlock Holmes novels, in my opinion. Yeah, so uh, I agree. I agree too. Thus far, yeah, thus far, and I I honestly feel that Watson is good is a good device of exploring people and how he, how he and he's a people person in that way. And uh, while Holmes is not a people person, but do you think though that do you think it would have worked? Let, let's just let's just throw this question on the table. Do you mm. think it, it could have worked for Watson to have made some leads on this himself, end up near or within the empty house, and then 
homestep out of the shadows? Like, would it have worked the same way if Doyle had imitated that Baskerville, um, that Baskerville sort of play? I don't think so because uh, if this is ultimately the return, say. if this is a return of Holmes, Holmes has got to be the guy on top. He, Watson, yeah. Watson can't have so much information. He can't be this clever to be able to track Moran down. I think he needs to be stifled here towards the beginning of the story. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking more, almost something in the in the line of uh, of say like the third season premiere of the X Files, where if you if any for those who watch the show, if you recall when when Mulder was trapped in the boxcar and it was set on fire, and then he was given the blessing way um, ritual by the uh, by the by the by the by the by the local um, Aboriginals, and how. I, I, were they Navajo? I, I, I forget the. Um, do, do you recall what tribe they were? Yeah. Uh, are you, were were, were uh, they Navajo? The Anasazi. No. The, well, the Anasazi are, are the ancient aliens, right? But I'm referring to 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 like. Oh, uh, sorry. Albert yeah, 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 Albert Holstein. Yeah, he's a Navajo. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. The Navajo. Exactly. Yeah. Because he. Did, I remember he did the coding and all that for the war. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Albert Holstein and like and the Navajo, and yeah, that, and that whole thing is that Mulder is going through this blessing way ritual and he's hardly in the story and it's mostly we see things through Scully's perspective right so I kind you of know, thought maybe yeah. the empty house would have been a little, maybe if we had a little bit of a delay but I understand given the demand too that this is return of Sherlock Holmes and you got to put him front and center in that way right you do especially after nine yeah. years nine years on the lamb you know yeah the public but, wants what it yeah. wants and, and you know we get a, only a, get we only get, get a morsel of W on his own uh-huh. uh, and but the book enthusiast, you know, drops the veil and gives thousands of fans what what, what they want, right? I mean, that's, right. that's, just, the, the, that's just how it is. That's how it um, is. Following Holmes you do, reveal, ra- you do raise an interesting point, though. Sorry, I just got to say, you raise an interesting point that we could perhaps explore at a later stage. Uh, is Fox Mulder, you know, a, a Sherlock Holmes figure? Like, how, well, Holm- how Holmesian is he? He certainly yeah. has the intuition and he certainly has some deductive reasoning. Um, and, you know, Scully spends the first two seasons chasing after his guesses more than two seasons but yeah <laughs> yeah but you know what i mean like it's really yeah. it's really obvious in the first couple of seasons that she's just got no rights of her own yet no it's definitely true uh i was gonna say though and there's also another correlation with sherlock holmes is if you think about uh the little indiscretion that he and phoebe green did on sir arthur conan doyle's tomb mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i think that was that that was chris carter trying to put like his you know his newly born you know crusader you know in in the same pantheon there in in my opinion anyway uh right sorry we're getting distracted but that's interesting we are but anyways following holmes reveal watson immediately takes a backseat and is once again he's following along with holmes just as before by halfway through the story like if you look at like there's like the last paragraph on one of the pages reveals watson's impression of holmes um Holmes is bitter and quick to anger. He's snapping at Watson in regard to the use of a dummy in the apartment window. I am such a farcical. Am I such a farcical bungler? You know what I mean. And mm. I and noticed that too. Yeah, he's quite, yeah, quite sharp. Yeah, he's very sharp. But Watson does point out um, that. It was indeed like old times when, at that hour, I found myself seated beside him in a hansom, my revolver in my pocket, and the thrill of adventure in my heart. Holmes was cold and stern and silent. 
as a gleam of the street lamps flashed upon his austere features, I saw that his brows were drawn down in thought and his thin lips compressed. I knew not what wild beast we were about to hunt down in the dark jungle of criminal London, but I was well assured from the bearing of this master huntsman that the adventure was a most grave one, while the sardonic smile which occasionally broke through his ascetic gloom boded little good for the object of our quest. Mm. So Holmes is on a mission, and and, and he's he's rough on the he's rough around the edges here. He wants he, he's he's bitter, you know. Yeah. I, I he's here to he's eager to settle scores, and. Uh, there's a continuity of development from both characters leaving off from the final problem and even before making this a tale I find of strong emotional intensity for the dynamic duo. I feel Watson's matter of fact reaction to Holmes return was not an entirely realistic reaction. And, and the added to the thing as well to the circumstances of having a friend suddenly return from the dead, but it is perhaps indicative of the times of people writing and, how men would respond to men, and maybe too much emotion was would, would just not have been carried away through in that Victorian era. I I, I don't know. It's hard well, to say. Uh, th- this is interesting to me as well, and I'm I feel that you're right. I think that your your mark, our mark for the perpetrator, sorry for the principles here, is largely going to rest on how you read this emotional intensity. Because to me, um, the midsection of this, there's a little bit too much of this um, this. I'm not going to call it faux romanticism, but like this must be an absolute gold mine for the, the the scholars or the Sherlockians or the you know the slash writer artists who who want <laughs> fan to, fiction yeah the fanfics that want to just kind of you know take stuff from here you you've got you know <clears throat> uh, perhaps it would be better if I gave you an account of the whole situation when that work is finished I'm full of curiosity I should much prefer to hear it now you will come with me tonight when you like and where you like. This is indeed like the old days. We shall have a time for a mouthful of dinner before we need to go. Well then, about that chasm. And he goes on, right? And then he's like, then he, then he, talks, about, then he talks about Mycroft and he's like, uh, Watson, I owe you many apologies, my dear, but it was all important that it should be thought I was dead. And it was quite certain that you would not have written so convincing of an account of my unhappy end had you not thought yourself that it was true. Several times during the last three years, I've taken up my pen to write to you, but always I feared lest your affectionate regard for me should tempt you to some indiscretion which would betray my secret. Like, there, there is a lot of this sort of, uh, uh, this is a lot of romantic stuff in here and and, and you know what like i don't have a problem with it really but i it distracted me a little bit at this stage Mm. because i that's not why i enjoy the stories like i enjoy their friendship and i enjoy the love that they have for each other for sure whatever let's call it let's call it what it is but i didn't feel and perhaps it's because i didn't have nine years between the stories you know like i'll I'll, fair enough i didn't have the time between the stories but I just kind of felt like, okay, it's a little heavy-handed, but maybe it's heavy-handed deliberately because the audience wanted something that would that would give you a, a swell of the heartstrings, you know? Yeah, if I could offer a bit of a historical context just for a second here. Uh, I was reading recently um, A Team of Rivals, which is a biography of Abraham Lincoln and his, uh, and, his ca- and his wartime cabinet. And one of the things they mentioned in, in the early years of like Lincoln and Chase and uh, all those other people in Lincoln's cabinet was that back then it was very common for young men to form bonds with each other. And these bonds were actually even more intense than one they would have with, 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 with their wives. 
like men would share the same bed together not in that you know biblical sense but just in the way of just how you know they would lodge together they would sleep in the same bed together uh they would do everything together they were they were very there was a strong there was a very strong sense of intimacy in young men you know in the uh early victorian to late victorian period and, i mean this was in the united states so even more so i probably i would say in england as well right i mean in, and who knows even more so uh, people may, you know, misconstrue that as possible that maybe these people were, perhaps they were having, I don't know, homosexual relations. I don't know, it's, you know, that whatever. I mean, I'm not judging or anything like that. All I'm saying is, is that um, we we shouldn't jump to jump the gun saying that, you know, this that these these hints that Doyle is giving us that possibly he's trying to, I, I don't know. We I don't think we should read into in, into that direction. Uh, it's just more about what the relationship is between like young men growing up or men living together and the intimacy from uh, that of, of a platonic friendship. Uh-huh. Do you catch? Do you catch my drift? I catch exactly what you're saying, um, and I don't. I don't disagree with you. I'm. I'm not. I don't read much into the the homosexual ideas of this. Mm. And, and believe me, my uh, my additions are full of annotations to that effect. <laughs> not, not not trying to sell it, but just simply stating it. It's there, and that, and I think that's the greatest thing about these these Klinger texts. One of the best compliments that I can give him. Um, in the work that he's done annotating these is is giving you a real good survey of opinions that exist mm. on different source material points uh, without really saying one thing or the other. You know, it's more like an encyclopedic walkthrough than anything okay. else. And um, he himself doesn't push a theory on you. It's more like here's a survey of what people are thinking. And there's all kinds of this, you know, the type of homosexual reading of these stories. And, and I agree with you that context plus nine years of separation from the characters uh with the public have led to you know this maybe coming maybe coming off the page is a little more saccharine than than it normally would more more romantic yeah anyway look um Okay, so let's just let's just speed up here a little bit now. Yeah, let's score the uh, the principles. I so gave it four point five. You went four point five. I wasn't quite as generous as that. I went to four. I mean, it's still not a bad mark, but uh, I, I didn't go four point five. Um, I, I, feel... was, I was satisfied with the development of the characters from the final problem and continuing onwards. Right. I liked I like Holmes's bit of more of a bitter steel that he wielded in this story, and I like Watson's. Agency, ding, 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 that word again, yeah. uh, in, in, in this tale in particular. Uh, and uh, there are some good passages here. And overall, and going on, because I actually really like the villain, I kind of really like, I was intrigued by the villain of this story as well. I actually found this a better tale overall than the, than, uh, the final problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, our, the final problem... Just trying to find our scores for it. I don't it wasn't, have it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't one of our highest. No, no it, wasn't. it wasn't. No. Disappointing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, what well, score, okay. What score did you give it? Uh, what, the final problem? No, 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 no. Uh, what score did you get the principles for? I went, the, uh, I went four. Four overall. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. Yeah, you said yeah. four. That's correct. Sorry. Yeah, I thought that I thought it was consistent uh, throughout the story, at least. Uh, Holmes was cold, uh, a little nasty towards Watson. And, you know, I take that as part of his character, really. Um because as I've said to you before, I read him as a very uh, high-functioning autistic type, and I can see sometimes the swings of emotion without justification. They yeah, make, they make sense to me. It follows with the the profile. The, the, so the gears, the gears, sh- shifting the uh, the overreactions of something of something. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I like I like what Holmes does. I like how he uh, he pulls everything in, sets the trap. It is it is good. It is clever. Um, but I think there's better features to the story than the two of them. And mm. maybe maybe talking about the investigation will pull it out. So go ahead. Um, what's your score for or your thoughts on investigation? Uh, the Adira murder is a great teaser to, to the story, creating a necessary suspense of a mystery for us to ponder. On top of that, there's another enigma. At what juncture or what connection is this to the return of Sherlock Holmes? Mm. Right? Yeah. Watson's investigation to the Adira murder is what unites him with Holmes. It is very convenient that the culprit of the Adira murder ends up being the man, being you know the man that Sherlock is pursuing, but the writing manages to tie this together in a believable fashion, so it doesn't seem like the coincidence is is as implausible as it could have been. Uh, Holmes's narration of the contest at Reichenbach, his faking his own death, and all that follows is written eloquently and excitingly enough for this purpose. Uh, the added mystery of what circumstances Holmes will return from the dead, it elevates what is a pretty standard mystery as well. Locked room mystery, as, as, you, say, as you said. We're more interested with the means of Sherlock returning and how the culprit slash last connection Moriarty will be brought to, to, to justice. And for that, all those pieces, I give it a four. Yeah, I was four as well. Um, I thought it was good. I thought it was engaging, entertaining. I wasn't bored when I was reading it, but I thought ultimately for a return, a return of the character and a reuniting you know, moment for these two figures, I would like to have seen, and although I enjoyed it, right? I did enjoy it, the whole sniper thing at the end, I would have liked to have seen something a little bit more that lived up to the plummet or the supposed plummet of the of the falls like he's been away for three years uh you know i would like to have seen something more than a little cat and mouse game in the last mm. section of the story i don't know what i want but i wanted something that just was a bit more had a bit more punch like i don't know if you want a, if you want a good uh, variation of that standoff uh the the sherlock holmes a game of shadows the moriarty reichenbach scene is it's pretty it's pretty cool in that actually mm. Just if, 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 if a, a YouTube of a clip or something might satisfy your uh, your need there is all I'm saying. Uh, that said, you gave it a four. Okay. What did you think uh, about what do you think about the writing? I mean, we've talked about this romantic quality that came into it for obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, how did you feel the story was paced? Did you did you like it? I liked the pacing of the story. Yeah, I thought the teaser was a great setup. I I, I and I liked how there was kind of a mystery within a mystery. There was like that meta mystery of how is he coming back. And then, then there's the mystery itself, you know, the locked room and how it connects. And they managed to connect those paces. I mean, it was a very taut story and how, and how that was done. And I didn't think it, it, it rambled on in, in, in the way that it could. I, I think it was economic in that way. So I, I, I don't think it was a great story, but it was a good story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was, I, okay, yeah, fair enough. I was just, um, just kind of... Uh, it, it, I guess it doesn't matter, but um, it doesn't the, matter. Your the, opinion always matters. Yeah, I, I know, but I'm thinking of timing and wanting to get to the other two stories. But the ending uh, of the story, the ending of the story where we got this um, this info drop, kind of, you know. Oh yeah, the info drop again is a curse of Sherlock Holmes when yeah, it comes to. Uh, it, it is kind of taking but, me taking taking me out of the narrative a little bit there, out of, out of the I guess the emotional catharsis. But before we get the info drop, we get the the confrontation between Holmes and Moran you know when he captures him and I like that scene that's written like instead of it just being an arrest scene and then we go home for breakfast or dinner and then we get the info drop like there is there is a great speech given by Holmes here and I kind of love 
I'm going to say seething pride. I don't know if that's the right expression, but it kind of sounds like that to me, the, the sort of the metaphorical significance of what he's saying here. Um, the, colonel the, sta- the colonel stared at my friend like a man in a trance. You cunning, cunning fiend, was all <laughs> that he could say. I've not introduced you yet, said Holmes. This gentleman is Colonel Sebastian Moran, one of Her Majesty's Indian Army and the best heavy game shot that our Eastern Empire has ever produced. I believe I'm correct, Colonel, in saying that your bag of tigers still remains unrivaled. The fierce old man said nothing, but still glared at my companion. With his savage eyes and bristling mustache, he was wonderfully like a tiger himself. I wonder that my very simple stratagem could deceive so old a shikari, said Holmes. It must be very familiar to you. Have you not tethered a young kid under a tree, laying uh, laying above it with your rifle, and waited for the bait to bring up your tiger? This empty house is my tree, and you are my tiger. You've possibly had other guns in reserve in case there should be several tigers, or in the unlikely supposition of your of your own aim failing you. These, he pointed around, are my other guns. The parallel, the parallel is exact. Colonel Moran sprang forward with a snarl of rage, but the constables dragged him back. The fury upon his face was terrible to look at. I confess that you had one small surprise for me, said Holmes. I did not anticipate that you yourself would make use of the empty house as this convenient front window. I had imagined you as operating from the street where my friend Lestrade and his merry men were awaiting you. With that exception, all has gone as I expected. Anyway, and then and then Moran's like, "Look, okay, do I have to stay here and listen to this guy?" You know, like, I, I like that scene. I think that was quite a good scene. Um, yeah, he, Sherlock anyway. Holmes was, was was being a great dick. I think maybe that's what that's what our our crick was getting at, was saying how like, ha ha ha, Sherlock could be such a dick, and that's totally true. But he was being a dick in a good way, you know, like yeah, uh, he was yeah. uh, goading the villain a bit, and uh, uh, that was enjoyable. You cunning, cunning fiend. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so yeah, fours for each of us. Good scores, not the best, but very good, solid scores. Um, I also like uh, Mrs. Hudson in this, but we'll get to her in a minute. What about oh, the per- yeah. what about the perpetrator then? I know you've already said a few words about Moran, but um, what'd you give him? I gave Moran a four. Yeah, uh, like his dead master. We never really get a beat on him, but I like how Watson compared him to a tiger. That was kind of cool, and it kind of fit him. You know, you are what you eat, kind of in, in a way. You mm-hmm. you you are a predator who is a predator, despite how civilized and classy you are, uh, playing whist and cheating at it, right? I mean, the guy is just kind of like a pretender, a social pretender in his own way, mm-hmm. without Moriarty around, right? Uh, he has a clear hatred of Holmes and loyalty to Moriarty. The following passage, you know, that you did <laughs> indicates this. Uh, he's cold-blooded and a cheater. He's stealing funds from a whist game and then murdering a dare who planned to go out, you know, who planned to out him as a cheater. Professional soldier. He's almost like a dark Watson, you know. He'd served in Afghanistan, India... He's a master of the air rifle. You know, one wonders why such a man would be loyal to Moriarty, and what explanation do we have for his character? That's what I was was wondering. Uh, Dishonorable discharge, I guess? Uh, I don't know, but why would a man like him who served as a rifleman, you know, I I guess he went to war like some people do nowadays just, just to shoot things as opposed to serving his country or the empire. Or maybe something happened down the road that made him change his perspective, you know, like... It's, you know why do some soldiers become private military contracts afterwards right yeah, so yeah. well I, I liked yeah. him a little more than you actually I went 4.5 oh, uh, okay. for him as, enough, a, as a perpetrator and I think I went there because I like the idea of him being the one at the falls who watches Holmes and launches the boulders down like I like the continuation of him there as having some part to play in Holmes's mindscape over the three years of absence from London I like I like the lingering quality of him and I like the the silence with which he attacks and I and although 
although it is an info drop, I actually like the backstory of this character a lot more than some of the other ones that we get, like about, oh, yeah. a rich American tycoon whose father does, you know, like, I find yeah, that this, yeah. this is an interesting villain. He's a guy who I think you could really adapt easily for any, well, not any, but certainly our time today, too. Like you say, you know, ex-military contract killer. Like, I like this type of stuff. This is interesting to me. Yeah, I'm surprised that the Sherlock series did nothing with that character. Like, yeah. nothing at all. It's the fact that the Robert Downey Jr. movies used Sebastian Sir Moran in an effective kind of great henchman kind of way, and the the action and the much, much better BBC series didn't, that's, mm. that's saying something, you know, where the writing went on that show. But enough of that. Yeah. I, like, I really like the description of Moran on the same page there. It was a tremendously virile and yet sinister face which was turned towards us with the brow of, of a philosopher above and the jaw of a sensualist below. The man must have started with great capacities for good or for evil. So here we're getting actually some bit more description on, on kind of like what Watson thinks of his person and why he may why he ended up being the man that he was. But one could not look upon his cruel blue eyes with their dro drooping cynical lids or upon the fierce aggressive nose and the threatening deep-lined brow without reading nature's plainest danger signals. He took no heed of any of us, but his eyes were fixed upon Holmes's face with expression in which hatred and amazement were equally blended. You fiend, he kept on muttering. You clever, clever fiend. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, th I, think he's, I, th I think he's definitely, uh, I would say, one, one of the top villains in the Holmes villain pantheon. So far. So far. Uh, I think, for my part, you know, just to finish off with him, the half-mark... And I've written, I'll tell you, just as I've written it, it's only a simple point, but the half mark came off because I think that his link, as it was written at least, uh, to Ronald Adair is really quite tenuous. Like, I, I don't see it these guys, I don't see these guys as card partners, you know, myself personally. Uh, I can see him maybe taking advantage of Adair, but there's no real event, there's no real evidence that that's what he's trying to do. Give Brand seems like you give him a target and he'll take it out yeah, for you. He's yeah. used to that. But when he tries to play the game, his own criminal games himself, He's terrible at it. Like Adair was basically about to out him, and his only option was to basically splatter his brains. So, uh -huh. anyway, there you go. Um, <clears throat> I do. I'll say this overall, okay, because it's kind of like an investigation point, kind of like a perpetrator's point, but and maybe like a secondary character's point too. So I'm just gonna basically say what I want to say for the rest of the story in this, okay? Uh, of all of the of all of the stories we've read so far, these Sherlock Holmes stories, this one for me gives a lot of James Bond feeling, a lot of Bond vibe. And mm. I, de I deconstruct it out this way. You know, you've got modified weapons. Yeah. You've got a stakeout. You've got yep. the death of an important henchman. You've got an alias and a disguise. You've got Mrs. Hudson and Lestrade, like the old familiar lighter and Q yeah. doing, doing work on the inside, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I just think that more than some of the others, this lifts up the, the backdrop in a way that uh, the, the James Bond novels and the James Bond films give you those expected tropes, you know? Like, it, it's kind of like we're getting a full character piece here. And I, I think that is really cool. Like, I think it works for the story. I don't think it works enough, though, to give it more than a 4 and, you know, 4.5 respectively. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, I get a lot of 007 vibe here. Oh, a little bit, yeah. There, there is kind of a spy atmosphere to the whole, to the whole situation, and perhaps you know, maybe in the end, this is kind of. Uh, people say a lot, a lot of the spy novel might have been originated from Sherlock Holmes a little, a little bit, just because of the globe trotting, perhaps, and, and whatnot. And 
was there another famous like spy character prior to James Bond, like in literature, um, like 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 espionage wise? Uh, I'm sure I'm sure there were some precursors, but I don't know them off the top of my head, and I'd have to go mm-hmm. look it up. But I think you know Poe and Doyle all had their part to play in modifying it. Plus, the political situation um, would have would have endorsed and encouraged the creation of a spy character in a way that you know this hadn't. You know this, yeah. even though the Vic- Queen Victoria had her own spies, and we we know this. But yes, anyway, right? Let's let's move on. Um, Basically, I'll do environs and my secondary uh, real quick. I just said something about the secondary. Lestrade, back, good to see him. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Hudson is cool. You know, she's doing something. Even if it's not a lot, she's doing something. Adair seems all right, but we don't really, you know, get to see him very much. Um, The environment of the story is is nice, actually. I I, I like the environment here more than I thought I would at first reading because you get all these these Park Lane and Oxford Street mansions and sort of the, the really expensive, wealthy, well-to-do London families are all there. And, you know, Lord Balmoral, I don't know if you picked up on this, by the way. Um, I picked up on the name and I looked into it and then I discovered that I was indeed correct and Klinger told me more. But Lord Balmoral, from whom Adair and Moran collect their winnings at the card table, yes, is the unseen father of Lord Robert St. Simon from The Noble Bachelor. And, oh. and Lord Balmoral's horse ran in the Wessex Cups, in the Wessex Cup in uh, Silver Blaze. Oh, wow. Cool. Very cool, cool the way that, that he's kind of using these little offstage characters to still create the bigger world of Holmes. And, and I give him props for that. Um, the environment, it's almost, it's, it's almost I, like um, almost like a comic book mythology in a way that, that, that Doyle is kind of developing in many ways. Like that whole kind of universe is, yeah. connection. Yeah. yeah. Well, the seeds, the seeds are there for it. Uh, the environment is cool. You know, the, the dark... Um, the the dark empty room obviously uh, of the house and then kind of how that oh I gotta say something about that too um, one of the notes I was reading was uh, arguing against the possibility of Moran being able to take the shot because by using physics and get this right like uh, by using physics and sort of geometry to understand the average height of buildings on Baker Street at the time and the low uh, or the low flooring and ceiling of and window height of the apartment across the road. They were measuring out everything, basically, and saying that unless Colonel Moran was standing on a driving bus or a passing by bus, there's no way he'd be able to hit through the window at Baker Street. <laughs> and I just think to myself, okay, at what point is your scholarship just going into stupid, crazy town? Like, yeah, it's, it's, like just, Star Trek, it's like Star Trek nerd dumb right there. Yeah, it is. Anyway, I went four for environments, and I went four for secondary characters. So I got a total score of 20.5. Environs, I the idea of crime scene is sketched out clearly for the reader. He allows us to visualize the murder in our mind's eye. I like two two one Baker Street with the Sherlock bus and Miss Hudson out of eyesight. You know the dark shadows of the empty house, the the, the like the ribbons and the that are that are the walls and the plank and the and the and, the, and you know the the planks that they walk on and whatever in the empty house. The shadow cast on the wall of Moran fire about to aim the rifle. That was pretty suspenseful stuff. It was that I I, I enjoyed that. Uh, so I gave the environs 3.5. I didn't okay. delve into the Park Lane kind of stuff as deep as you did in that respect. Uh, uh, perhaps I should have done more research on those places. Um, I'll, I'll look for that in the future. But 3.5 was my my, my my mark for the environs. And for the principles, I found there was a yarn with a very thin supporting cast. Yeah, Adair, not much development. Miss Hudson was there, of course, but she didn't really do much besides follow orders. 
Lestrade yeah, but, is there. But when he's have happy. we ever seen her do that? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, the fact that's that she was involved true. is pretty cool. True. Like, she's always a mention. She's always a passing remark. Here, she actually speaks and says, on my knees, like you told me to. Like, I, I like that idea of, of bringing everybody back for this story and reminding us that, yeah, Holmes is surrounded by good people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's definitely true. And it definitely shows more of some of the, some of the agency that Ms. Hudson has in, in adaptations than she does in the actual novels. Anyway, I'm not I mean, trying to influence her, 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 your story. No, of course. Of course, I understand. Uh, still, I, I found 3.5. I think it's a fair review for yeah, the uh, for, for the um, supporting cast. All right. That's my, that, that, that's my say, and I'm sticking to it. So you, my friend, are 19.5 overall, and I'm 20.5. And this okay. is a bit of a rarity because I like this story a little bit more than you, which is cool. Uh, Normally, uh, I'm, I'm arguing a little more than you. Oh, uh, well, you know. <laughs> We all can't be lying. We all, you know, have different opinions and uh, different different views, of course. Speaking but, of different uh, opinions and different views, you got a choice mm-hmm. of musical selection. Uh, this is our only instrumental selection of uh, the afternoon. I've got a door number one and a door number two. Uh, both are soundtrack cues from very different films. What would I'll you like? Through, I'll go through door number one. Door number one. You have selected uh, a track called. Setting the Trap by James Horner for his score to Missing. Hmm. The other one was a John Williams score for a Black Sunday, and it was a track entitled Preparations. So I guess this works well because The Missing, the name of the film, is uh, also, I guess, what Holmes is for most of this story and for the last <laughs> nine years. So here we go. Setting the Trap by James Horner. a little bit of atmosphere for you there from the missing setting the trap by james horner our musical selection which will suit us quite nicely i think and enough of that for our first story the adventure of the empty house and we use that of course as we always do our musical selections to segue into text number two the adventure of the norwood builder so so what's the uh, publication details for this one well, let me let me tell you. It was published in the Strand in November of 1903, of and uh, it appeared in Collier's Weekly in October of the same year, October 31st, in fact, Halloween. This is the very mm. first case in the whole canon to feature fingerprints as a chief clue, and we can discuss whether that's successful or not in a few minutes. Um, I would, however, like to read something from Conan Doyle's biography here, which I 
picked up a few weeks ago. This is a great book called uh, Conan Doyle, The Man Who Created Sherlock Holmes, written by Andrew Lysett. And I want to read this for you because it kind of, I think, contextualizes some of this publication history for us. It's only a very, very brief moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. So... Yeah, okay. I was intimating earlier that he had, you know, a lot of communication with the um, editor, the publisher at the the Strand, right? This guy, Greenhouse Smith. We've mentioned him before on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps being miffed, uh, or perhaps miffed at being preempted by Collier's, Greenhouse Smith was lukewarm towards these two latest stories thinking that they lacked not only originality, but tangible crime. So he told Doyle this, you know, he wrote to him and said, I'm not, you know, I'm not really impressed with these stories. Uh, And the argument, the idea is that he was feeling this way because someone else got to publish them before he did. (laughs) Uh, forced, Forced to defend himself on the 14th of May, Arthur argued in correspondence that the Norwood builder was well up to his standards for subtlety and depth. I don't know. What do you think? Just... You know, shooting from the hip. Is it subtlety subtle? And, subtlety depth. and depth? Yeah. A little subtle. Depth, I I, I don't know. Um, I'm Because I have my own reservations about the motivations of the uh, perpetrator. So that's a long shot for me. Right. Well, it, it is for me too, to be honest. Um, this, however, is also kind of interesting, and it might play into your plot summary a bit. Uh, he enjoyed writing this story, and part of the reason why, presumably, is because it's got his new wife's uh, touch upon it. Ah. Jean. Uh, her presence was again evident in this story, The Norwood Builder, with its South London locations and his detective's urgent need to be in the direction of Blackheath, where her family lived. Holmes's cumbersome use of the builder's thumbprint, however, to determine his guilt... Uh, demonstrated ingenuity rather than any sophisticated grasp of modern forensic techniques. And there have been several that have criticized that fingerprinting technique, even though it was, you know, pretty early days for fingerprinting. Right. Um, in literature, at least. Uh, people have criticized Holmes for that. Anyway, yeah, getting back to uh, some reviews on the story. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> it has a, a score of 3.8 out of 5 on Goodreads. And here's a few selections of our fine reading friends. Colin gives it five stars. Another excellent tale from the literary mind of Doyle. Once again, the crime's backstory and motives behind the dastardly deed really fleshed out the literary genius in the tale. The evil intentions and eccentric nature of the villain easily enhanced the enjoyable nature of the story. Hmm. Three stars. Sorry, go ahead. That's a bit of a synopsis, but that was well, yeah. no, that was, uh, that was more of like a capsule review or more uh-huh. so than just like a blurb. Three stars from George. So Holmes doesn't solve a murder this time, he solves a practical joke. Confused? Go read it, man. Fire. Fire? Yeah, fire, yeah. Does that, does that mean it's lit? Is that what he's trying to say? Uh, I, don't, I don't know what he's saying. Uh, here's another review. Three stars. <laughs> Three stars. Uh, dude was faking his own murder, jerk. <laughs> well, he's, you know, you can give him marks for comprehension. Uh-huh. And uh, finally, uh, a review by Rao. Now, I'm not sure if this is lost in translation or a bit of a piss take. I'll let you decide for yourselves. At the crux, exclamation mark. This was a story that has more to do and less to say. This story has potential, power, progress, but is also predictable. Crime fictions are like firecracker, which have a long thread. 
The thread burns gradually, and after many twists and swirls, boob. But just envisage that you have gawked that boob so many times that now, merely a cliche under your perspective. That is a story where it becomes predictable. Nevertheless, the text was, yet again, wonderful, and the story also had some unrealized truths. So over and above, it was worth reading. Well, at least they enjoyed it. I guess that's what matters, right? <laughs> Four stars, yeah. Anyway, there's a taste of the Norwood Builder. Um, for better or for Boob. worse, go for it, buddy. Launch into your plot summary, and we'll get this one done in a jiffy. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to have a rant on here just to warn you about uh, Watson, uh, Benny, and his wife, uh, who, who I just learned is actually dead. So uh, just ignore whatever tangent it takes us well look I, I, I never said it as truth i just made reference to the quote that watson said in the empty house about his sad bereavement that's all uh oh what, okay. what else what else could it be it's true it's true but maybe he's referring to holmes's own death who's hard, i don't know it's hard to say um but that's a very good uh s- sentence to quote uh that as that's that yeah that's pretty um what's the word uh it's pregnant with meaning Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes is bored. The London crime scene is Dullsville since Professor Moriarty swan dive at Reichenbach. Holmes and Watson are once again inseparable. Back to business. And boy, do I mean inseparable since Sherlock has ordered Watson to A, quit his profession, and B, to quarter with him at 221B. I can't imagine this decision went over well in the Watson household. Something tells me Mary, that is her name, right? I mean, if she even exists, would not be too thrilled about her husband quitting his job and lodging with his, with his eccentric detective friend. Or maybe they have an open marriage. Or maybe she's dead. The bliss is short-lived, however, when the door is buzzed, wrapped upon, and penetrated by the likes of a Mr. John Hector McFarlane. Using his mutant power of deduction, Holmes ascertains that McFarlane is a solicitor. Watson himself is able to pick apart the telltale signs before Holmes can elucidate the prospective client's occupation any further. McFarlane's on the lam for the murder of an old builder in Norwood. Hey, that's where the title comes from. This builder, Jonas Oldacre, is a family friend of McFarlane, a.k.a. he used to court McFarlane's mother. Oldacre requests McFarlane to drop his will. To the younger man's shock and awe, Oldacre also names as a beneficiary. That family connections... But all that is moot because Old Acre is dead, possibly budgeted by McFarland's cane, and then threw into a log fire to conceal the wrongdoing. Yeah, the concealed part didn't go so well. McFarland returns to his hotel after signing the papers, slash doing the deed, no, not that deed, and discovers he is wanted by Scotland Yard as a suspect in dun-dun-dun, Old Acre's death. Naturally, McFarland wants Holmes to cash in his get-a-jail-free card, but Lestrade has hotels on boardwalk and, has, and the evidence against McFarland, no thanks to the maid, is pretty damning. Mental note, if someone I hardly knew, family relation or not, I would not offer myself as an immediate beneficiary, nor hand out beneficiaries to shady characters. <laughs> no. McFarland pays the price for his naivete and is now the prime suspect for Old Acre's murder. Enter a pissing contest between Holmes and Lestrade, a rather tedious one at that. Holmes and Watson soon find themselves in a race against time to save McFarland from the gallows. Lestrade thinks he has his van... Never change, Lestrade. But Holmes needs more time, and while Lestrade provides his this stay of execution, Holmes travels to McFarland's environs in Blackheath. The maid is interviewed, who is clearly playing it close to her chest. What it is is unclear, however, that despite the interviews conducted at Blackheath and at Norwood afterwards, Holmes retains main stumped on the whole affair. He regrettably agrees with Lestrade, who is being quite a gloaty McGloaterson. The dynamic duo does learn, however, that old acre 
courted McFarland's mother back in the day until that awkward moment when Old Acre let loose a cat at a bird sanctuary. Guy was pretty twisted, and McFarland's mum dumped his ass. As fascinating as this information is, H&W returned to Norwood, a.k.a. the scene of the crime. Holmes is accreted by his smug professional rival, quote-unquote, with further evidence of McFarland's guilt, the presence of a bloody thumbprint. But the real kicker is that Holmes' abilities allows him to replay the past day in his mind, and he is certain beyond a doubt that he did not see the bloody thumbprint earlier. So Holmes concocts a plan, really sort of punked with Ashton Kutcher replaced by Sherlock. Grabbing straw <laughs> from outside, he lights a fire. Watson was glad he didn't have to use a cherry bomb this time, which gives off a lot of smoke, enough to reveal dead man Old Acre from a secret closet. Turns out Old Acre didn't care too much for Mama McFarland's rejection and decided to, naturally, get back at her by framing her son for his own murder. Old Acre is defied to the last but gets taken away by Lestrade. Lestrade has a rather good sport about this in the end. McFarland is exonerated and Sherlock is bored once again and we, we the audience learn that rabbits can stand in for human bodies if they are burnt beyond recognition and some people just aren't good at taking yeah. rejection. Yeah. yeah, yeah, rabbits can stand in. Yeah, as long as there's a few buttons thrown into the fire. Yeah, a few, a few buttons, yeah, a few brass buttons, yeah, as well. And, and, and a... <laughs> And a loyal maid to back up your uh, uh-huh. to 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 do false false witness for you. So yeah, okay. Look, man, like we're we're gonna light our pipes and we're gonna discuss this. But yeah, just, just tell me your gut your gut reaction. Are the are the critics right? Is is the editor of the Strand right when he says that this is not up to the old standards? Do you like Do you like this? Do you, I mean, I ca- I, I kind of find it kind of I don't know, I kind of enjoyed the twist of it. I don't know. I I, I enjoyed I I enjoyed the uh, Norwood Builder, but. It was kind of like it just didn't. Ha- it just kind of ended with a whimper, you know. And it kind of says like, okay, I guess he's. I, 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 it was just. It was just kind of daft, I guess, as you could describe <laughs> yeah, it. I think that is a good way to describe it. There's not much a consequence that that happens here at the end of it all, and and you know, yeah, the guy was freed for, uh, or, or you know, the guy who was framed at least was freed, and so you kind of got the same idea that uh, the barrel coronet, you know, the guy who was up for the crime gets gets freed just by the evidence against the other and the re- revelation at the end. I do like the fact, though, that uh, Oldacre built his own little hiding spot because he was a builder. I <laughs> think that's clever. <laughs> that, was pre- that was pretty cool, yeah. I, I, if we light our pipes now, I guess we can, we can uh, light them. Yeah, they're still uh, lit. Oh, they're still lit? Okay, well, oh, yeah. I'll, just, I'll just pipe away here. My score for principles was a three. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I found Watson and Liz Sherlock were just kind of doing their usual things here. They were going through the motions, you know, like uh, there, was, there wasn't kind of like that emotional background that you had in the empty house in this story. They were just kind of like going about business, you know, and there wasn't really anything, uh, I, don't, I don't know, like to, to me anyway, there wasn't really anything that stood out to me in terms of development of their characters at all. They were pretty much going by the book and within the story and this this dovetails into the narrative the investigation part of it for me because it's it was more about the twist of of the story itself you know than the actual like grounded characters and and natural organic i guess development right yeah there's not much of a uh, a little scene either between the two of them at the beginning of this like we have in so many of the other stories where Holmes is doing something clever and Watson is like oh oh, I'm such an idiot you know there's nothing like that here either but we do get some important information at the beginning of the story we learn that um, 
Watson has sold his practice. Always a fucking doctor around to buy a practice when he needs it sold. You, not- you notice that? <laughs> so convenient, eh? I guess so a lot of people convenient. were sick back, sick back in the day, I suppose. Well, he bought a practice easily and he sold a practice easily. And a young doctor named Werner had purchased my small Kensington practice and given with astonishing little demur the highest price I had ventured to ask. We, we find out later, though, that this guy was a distant relation of Holmes. This doctor that bought the uh, the practice, which so it all tells us that it was Holmes. Werner, yeah. It was it was all Holmes's way of getting Watson to move back in with them to buy his practice out with a high price. It's kind of manipulative, eh? It's kind of almost like uh, ex like stalker boyfriend kind of. Uh... It is, but I think it's kind of it's kind of cute, and it, it certainly plays more into the bromance of things. Like, okay, well, how can I convince Watson to move back in with me? I know, I will. You know, plant ideas in his mind. Presumably, he's been doing this about coming inception. back. Inception. Yeah, inception. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then I'll sell, or I'll get my cousin to, you know, buy the thing off him. So it's really Holmes's own money. That anyway, I think, I think it's funny. Yeah. So. I, I, one thing I did, I did like about why I kind of gave it a three. You know, and uh, I did like how Holmes, Holmes is like. More and more, of it, I think maybe it's because of his relationship with Watson and other, and his exposure to to, to these relationships than before. He, he doesn't. He at first he comes off as a bit of a dick, you know, in that way. But once he realizes being his dick, he, a dick, he kind of always rolls himself back a little bit, you know. Like he doesn't he doesn't want to be construed as such, you know. Like he responds the way that he does in a clinical fashion because that's just how he that that's just how he rolls. Yeah, but. When, when he's realizing he might be pushing the line or annoying people, he's more he's more observant of that as of late. Like uh, the second paragraph, the third paragraph here. Um, well, well, I must not be selfish," said he with a smile as he pushed back his chair with from the breakfast table. The community is certainly the gainer and no one the loser, save the poor out of work specialist whose occupation is gone. With that man in the field, one's morning paper represented infinite possibilities. He's talking about Moriarty, right? No, no. no no, no longer stirring up shit. Yeah. So it's just kind of just showing that, like, uh, it's like I'm pretty bored, but I guess I should be happy that I'm bored. You know, like it's. But he can't help his own inclinations. Uh huh. I, I mean, I went a little bit higher though. I went okay. three point. I went three point five only because uh, I like the the swagger that Holmes does deliver. Uh, his um, <clears throat> his kind of perceptive. Um, Oh yeah, Defin- no definition I, of of McFarland. You know, he, I gave it three point five as well. Yeah, I I, I should re- I should state that I, I meant three point five, not three. So I did give oh. it three point five. Yeah, the, yeah, the characters but, were the strongest part of this whole story for for me, to be honest. Well, when he meets McFarland, he uh, he says to him, "Have a cigarette, Mister McFarland." Uh, I'm sure that with your symptoms, my friend Doctor Watson here would prescribe a sedative. The weather has been so very warm these last few days. Now, if you feel a little more composed, I should be glad to tell you, or I should be glad if you sit down in that chair, tell us very slowly and quietly who you are and what it is that you want. You mentioned your name as if I should recognize it, but I assure you that beyond obvious facts that you are a bachelor, a solicitor, a Freemason, an asthmatic, (laughs) I know nothing whatever about you. Yeah, just like that. Familiar as I was with my friend's methods, it was not difficult for me to follow his deductions, to observe the untidiness of his attire, the sheaf of legal papers, the watch charm, yes. and the breathing, which had prompted them. And that kind of connects nicely to what you're saying, that, you know, Watson is learning from Holmes. You know, he is, ex- he exactly. Is and I, I like how the writing is continuing. The writing yeah. is, is continuing that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, look, uh, yeah, I went 3.5 as well. Uh, before we leave the, the principal's, 
do you feel that there's a, a a good enough consistency in this story to like to recommend it for uh, as a Holmes and Watson story, or do you just think it kind of yeah. off? If you if you want a, if you want a good like uh, Watson dyna- Holmes dynamic, it's a good story. There's nothing, you know. There's a couple, there's a little bit of nuance there, uh, but the whole story revolves around and around a, the a whole twist of it, and I think kind of makes it a little more sh- shallower. And they kind of fu- they kind of function as glorified plot devices in this story, and more so than in the other ones. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, how about the investigation then? You, you mentioned the twist. Do you want to put that into... I mean, your plot summary did a good job of putting that into perspective, but do you want to maybe put it into your opinionated perspective? Yeah, the twist was cool. I mean, I like the fact that this guy was framing him for his own murder. You know, it was, it was framing someone for his own murder and getting back at him, and his motivations were kind of hilarious. But uh, I mean, What's the, the same- overall end game with that? Like, <laughs> what, what, what's, what's he going to do? Like, what's old Acre going to do after this? He's going to go, well, you, you weren't good enough for me. Well, I just sent your son to the gallows, so that's it, I guess. That's pretty sad. Yeah, but sad. what's he going to do? Is he going to disappear? That's the idea, right? Yeah, he's going to disappear. Yeah, exactly. Right. But, like, they never really revealed, you know, what he's going to do once he came out. You know what I mean? And uh-huh. and even even so, when he gets caught, like, Old Acre is basically, like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just uh, hiding, you know? Like, I, you know, it's like... <laughs> yeah. Because he, he, try, he, try, he tries to play it... He tries to... to, to play it off when he gets caught right i found uh, this i found it an easy investigation to follow like the twist of old acre himself being in the back you know under and, and all that sort of the the phony threat of fire and all of that i didn't see that part coming but i did know that there was an involvement with the wife that was easy for me to read right from the beginning when uh, mcfarland tells holmes that his name was familiar to me for many years ago my parents were acquainted with him but they drifted apart i mean that that's as that's as neon and flashing a, a Doyle clue as you get in any of these stories. Yeah, I kind of like. I, I saw this more of like a story was just like a. It was like a race. It, it's it's good too. I recommend it. It's like a race against time. You know, like it's it's a race against time. It's different from the gallows. So th- there's a noble. There's a benevolence to the quest that they're on. Um, and I also kind of just like the pissing contest between Holmes and uh, Lestrade too. And yeah, it, I, it is interesting. Although I feel like I've seen these pissing contests enough, like to want a different dimension to them. Like once again, Lestrade says, "Oh well, Holmes, you know it's it's difficult for me to refuse you anything, for you've been of use to the force once or twice in the past, and we owe you a good turn at Scotland Yard." Like it's almost like he's a guy who wakes up and his memory is erased every day. <laughs> and while that's okay, it's like Westworld or something. He's he's just like yeah. a robot reprogrammed every time. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I just feel like okay, Lestrade. I hear you say this all the time. Like, why not take these little points of you know, insecurity to a different level with your character. Do something different, you know, like, I don't uh, know. Why uh-huh. don't you have Lestrade, like, working out more at the gym and, like, you know, trying to wine and dine ladies more to, like, get over the fact that he's not as good as Holmes. Yeah, exactly. Like, see if he can beat him on some other level. But he always says the same thing. So he's just a bit like a talking head. <laughs> he is, yeah. He's just kind of like an obstacle, you know, like, and he's, he's, again, like a plot device, right? People use yeah, plot yeah. devices. I did, yeah. I did enjoy his character in the story overall. But... The investigation was, was was besides the twist was pretty cut and dry and it just didn't really j- jazz me like a lot of other stories you know like I wasn't really emotionally connected to saving yeah. Uh, yeah. McFarland beyond you know just just for the fact that you know that's a, how good people think how decent people <laughs> think right so so I guess I should be kind of on board with that so I was in that way but 
I don't know if I was uh, if I was invested. I guess is, is, is the word I would use. Well, I went 3.5 for the investigation because I thought it was well written. There were some nice things in here. The twist okay. is good, but you know, yeah, it's it's passable plus, and that's what a 3.5 is. Yeah, three for me, but uh, yeah. you know, that's that's what I'm sticking to. Perpetrator. I actually enjoy the perpetrator immensely in this story. Uh, his, his motive is his, his motive is awesome. <laughs> he just wants to get back at his ex, <laughs> and just, yeah. just by framing her son for murder, like. What a scummy douchebag this guy is! And I just found him, I just found him great and enjoyable. And then when he gets caught. He's all like, "I didn't do that. I know what you're talking about." <laughs> just like... Yeah, let me let me get to that bit. I want to read that part out because it is funny. <laughs> yeah, when he gets caught there. Um, yeah, go on. Finish your thoughts about him, and I'll uh, yeah. I'll find but this. so overall, like I find I find the perpetrator immensely enjoying, and uh, I and uh, I, don't know, I give him a four. I, I like I love the perpetrator of this story. Where is it that uh, Old Acre comes out? Yeah, okay, here we go. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it had hardly died away, the fire shout, when an amazing thing happened. A door suddenly flew open out of what appeared to be a solid wall at the end of the corridor. A little wizened man darted out of it, like a rabbit out of its burrow. Capital, said Holmes calmly. Watson, a bucket of water over the straw. That'll do. Lestrade, allow me to present you with your principal missing witness, Mr. Jonas Oldacre. The detective stared at the newcomer with blank amazement. The latter was blinking in the bright light of the corridor and peering at us at the smoldering fire. It was an odious face, crafty, vicious, malignant, shifty, light gray eyes and white eyelashes. What's this then? said Lestrade at last. What have you been doing all this time, eh? Old Acre gave an uneasy laugh. Uh, uh. <laughs> Shrinking back from the furious red face of the angry detective. I've done no harm. No harm? You've done your best to get an innocent man hanged. If it wasn't for this gentleman here, I'm not sure that you would not have succeeded. The wretched creature began to whimper. Oh, I'm sure, sir. It was only my practical joke. Oh, a joke, was it? <laughs> you won't find a laugh on your side, I promise you. Take him down. Keep him in the sitting room until I come. Mr. Holmes, I could not speak before the constables, but I don't mind saying in the presence of Dr. Watson that this is the brightest thing that you've done yet. Though it's a mystery to me how you did it. You've saved an innocent man's life and you have prevented a grave scandal, which would have ruined my reputation. Anyway, they have their little chat for a minute and then... Um, uh, where is it that oh does he come back into it no that's like the end of the story like it just kind of cuts off abruptly there right about after the rabbits I thought Old Acre had something else to say though no he doesn't does he no he doesn't well his, his response was it was, a good, it was a joke my good sir a practical joke nothing more what did you make about <laughs> what did you make about uh, um Oh, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes, he does say something else. Um, <clears throat> it was a joke, my good sir, a practical joke, nothing more. I assure you, sir, that I simply concealed myself in order to see the effect of my disappearance, and I'm sure that you would not be so unjust as to imagine that I would have allowed any harm to befall poor young McFarland. That's for, that's for the jury to decide. Anyhow, we'll have a charge on you of conspiracy, if not for attempted murder, and you'll probably find that your creditors will impound the banking account of Mr. Cornelius, because that was the name he was going to escape under, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The little man stared, started and turned his malignant eyes upon my friend. I have to thank you for a good deal, he said. Perhaps I'll pay my debt someday. Holmes smiled indulgently. I fancy that for some years you will find your time very fully occupied. By the way, what was it you put into the woodpile beside your old trousers? A dead dog? Rabbits? What? Yeah, so it was rabbits. But um, <laughs> didn't like what did you make of that? Because his ex, uh, McFarland's mother, was talking about how he used to abuse animals back when they were together. That's right, and she broke up with him because he put 
a cat in like a bird sanctuary. Yeah. Like, what? what a, he's a total douche, isn't he? Yeah, he's like he's, sounds like he has some issues he needs to resolve, that's for sure. <laughs> he does, but I would like to have had a bit more screen time. You know, I'd like for him to have been on the page a bit more and talking because he is just, just a dick. Yeah, he is. He's an old and bitter dick, and he's lived his whole life not being able to accept the fact that this woman, you know, turned him down. And I mean, the way he looks, the way he looks at it, he was a victim of a love lie, right? And uh, anyway, yeah, I, I went for a, uh, I went a four for him. <laughs> yeah, there was, I, mean, I, I see, like that's his top marks that he should get, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a four, like you know, it's a strong four, though. It's you know, it's near in four point five because of the because of his fun, but yeah, four. Where'd you fall on the environs? I found the environs kind of eh in this story. I like I like the I liked the the wood build I liked the builder's house and I thought that was well described and I liked I liked the, the little I guess little Ubilietti created for himself so that he could hide right mm-hmm. but That's uh, That's yeah clever, it was but... it was it was clever but beyond that in and Baker Street and other addresses the nah, basic nothing, the basic nothing stuff special nothing special going it, on it's a, it's a three for me yeah it was a three for me as well on the nose there's nothing really special going on here. Um, it's just interesting because we don't really hang around the environments very much. We get descriptions of them like through police reports and whatnot. But um, I like the idea of the two men sitting at the table kind of doing the, the, the figures, you know, the young man and the old guy who's plotting his revenge. But again, that's not that's not really environment. It's just it's a, it's an intimate scene of, of how he's distant from the environment, you know. That's correct. Um for the environs, I, g- I gave it three on that. Uh, How did you, you feel about the supporting cast? I really um, I, found, I really liked the supporting cast of this story. Um, I, I, I found Lestrade was entertaining. And it, it was en- enjoyable and no, no real dimension to what they were, he was doing, but it was it was enjoyable and it was probably the best pissing contest they've had yet between the two characters. Um, I found that uh, what's his name was a bit of a stand-in. Our our uh, Lord, our our Mister McFarland there, very much of a stand-in kind of character. Uh, and the maid was was an, was an enigma. I couldn't understand her loyalty to that particular man. And was there a hint of something on the side between the two of them? I have no idea. But uh, maybe there, there was some 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 hijinks that I don't want to visualize. So. Yeah. So well, the maid was certainly supporting them. You know, I mean, there's she. She was part of the whole thing. That's true. So I don't know what she was going to get out of it, but yeah, she was getting something out of it. But this guy was wealthy, right? And he had um, aliases, so maybe he was setting her up for life too. It's very possible. Very possible. Which, which also begs the question: like, if there was something going on between them, then how miserable really is he that he still has to take out his grief on his ex? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's something to ponder. Mm. Well, hey, um, so sorry. What did you ask me? You asked me what I gave the secondary characters. Well, I, d- I couldn't really give a lot because, as I said, I felt that Lestrade, though it was nice to see him, was just a staple robot. He didn't do anything above and beyond what he normally does. So, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give him tons. The client was okay, but like you said, I, I didn't really feel that much for him. Good people don't want to see good people die, so I didn't want to see him die, but that's about all I can say. He, yeah. he reminded me a lot of Hal, of Hal Pycroft in the Stockbroker's Clerk, you know, the, oh, the, okay. the naivety of him as a young lawyer going up and trying to do the books and, and not really connecting the fact that um, he lives at home with his mother and, and this guy probably could have picked any number of country lawyers to or town lawyers rather to to come out and do the job and he picked this one and he knew that the guy had a relationship with someone in the family but they had drifted apart like he's just a bit naive conveniently 
And I think that's suitable. You know, I think it's suitable, but this is a template for a character that we've seen before. And it, it's, it truly is. And so, yeah, I just had to go for a 3.5 there. Because Same I, with I me. I did not like him, but he didn't do a lot for me. Yeah, we tied on that one for sure. Well, I think we've pretty much tied on the story. Let's see what I got here for you. 7, 10, 7, you're 17 out of 25, and I'm 7, 10.5. I'm 17.5, so... Okay, you're 1.5 higher. Okay, interesting. Yeah, half a point higher. Um, I would just like to say, though, that a lot of the scholarship around this story rests upon, and I'm not going to read the the, the marks out, but rests upon um, clarifying why the will that was constructed by these two old, the old man, you know, Old Acre and um, young McFarlane, why that will would have been null and void anyway. Apparently, by English law, you needed to have two witnesses to the construction of a law. And there's all kinds of chat about why none of this would even have come out properly anyway, because huh. even if, like, the guy would have had no, he wouldn't have been able to leave his money in that way. You know what I mean? I see. Um, the other thing that is big, or rather highly contested feature of this story is the fingerprints as the chief clue. Um, really, why is that? Well, it's really interesting context about fingerprinting. I mean, it goes on for pages. There's an appendix to it, actually. But generally, the um, <clears throat> much of the criticism thrown at Doyle here has to do with the fact that uh, a, a wax imprint of a fingerprint or getting blood fingerprint from a wax in, uh, a wax imprint on the wall is a very challenging thing to do. And that can you imagine know, so you can't really lift a fingerprint with wax that way. And it's just kind of, you know. They're just using the materials of science to say this is actually not one of Conan Doyle's better crime scene, uh, you know, creations, right? Pseudoscience, narrative convenience, I understand. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, but for tackling the idea of fingerprints in a story, it's, you know, it's of the time. It's certainly talked about. Forensic science is, is building and generating a thrust, you know. It's becoming more and more um, usable, I guess, if that's the right word, applicable. Oh, starting to believe in it so anyway uh okay well look we got uh two it's like it's like an early version of the csi effect yeah yeah i guess you're right, I guess you're right. <laughs> we've got two different pieces of music pal for the norwood builder um you can choose door number Let's one go- or door number two but i can tell you that one of them has to do with um the well yeah okay i'll tell you what you, you go ahead and pick I'll go through door number one. I've, door I've, I've, number yeah, I've, one. Okay. I read a formula about something where, like, if you have a choice between door number one and door number two, that like if you pick door number one, you'll always usually get what you want. Right. Well, door number two, the one you didn't pick, uh, was Ozzy Osbourne's "Goodbye to Romance," which I thought fit this story quite nicely because uh, maybe he had something going on with the maid, maybe he didn't, but Old Acre certainly was hoping to say goodbye to romance in a memorable way. But By no, framing your son for murder. That's right. You have selected, my good man, you've selected a song called Someone Will Pay by Justin Towns Earl, which is uh, all about uh, dealing with dealing with having a grudge the whole lifetime long. <laughs> I don't get angry, I get even. I tell you, boy, it best be believed all the stars in the sky. Someone will pay 
ultimately, though, Mrs. McFarlane, Mrs. McFarlane never does pay for the way she supposedly lied about loving our friend Jonas Oldacre. And her son is freed from destiny. I would, he would have got away with it if it wasn't for those pesky detectives. <laughs> yeah, those pesky detectives. Right, well, okay. We Consulting got one, detectives. We got one story to go, and it's the adventure of the dancing men. What's your uh, gut on this one? I thought it was a. Um, I like the concept of the story, but I found the execution towards the end was kind of uh, derivative. Okay. And also very not well, not in great depth either as to what was going on. Um, I, 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 I don't know. Uh, uh, it's our, I'd say we need to kind of discuss it a little bit more to to sort of make have our opinions make more sense, give it more context. Okay, cool. Do you want to start off with publication information then, or do you want me to do my plot summary first? Uh, well, publication, uh, this was published in December 1903 in the Strand and a month earlier, and of course in the uh, Colliers there. Um, just following is the third story in the Return of Sherlock Holmes collection. Couldn't find much in terms of 